Welcome to the Wholehearted Eating Podcast, where non-diet nutrition, weight-inclusive care, and integrative health collide. We're your hosts, Dana Montes and Christina Hoyt, licensed integrative clinical nutritionists and body image coaches. And we believe you deserve to have a joyful relationship with food in your body, even if you have a chronic health condition or symptoms that just won't quit. On this show, together and with our guests, we're bringing the real talk, no BS5 with tangible tools to help you pursue health and wellness without obsession or restriction. Remember our disclaimer, this podcast is meant for general information purposes only and should not be taken as a substitute for medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Quick update before we get started today. So if you haven't noticed, where have you been? We've been talking about body image a lot the past month with our incredible guests, and we know that this isn't a light or easy topic to work through, so we wanted you to know that we are here for you along the journey, and not just as your podcast hosts. So instead of having a sponsor this month, we wanted to talk about an amazing body image-specific resource that we have created for you and for our clients. The Body Image Audit is a curated course taking key concepts that we're talking about on the show and tells you exactly how to apply these skills to build body image resilience and body neutrality into your everyday life. We know that this journey takes time to work through, so why not invest in something that you can always go back to, like a toolbox in your back pocket to shut that inner mean girl up whenever she comes out. And honestly, what better time to work on your body image when we are in the middle of what could be the most body image struggle time of the year. Not only is it beach body and swimsuit season, but um, talk about that meeting the end of quarantine and all of the things that go along with that. So if there was ever a time to invest in understanding the root cause of your body image and how to actually get out of the negative body image spiral, now is the time. We'll show you exactly how in the body image audit. Check it out at bit.ly forward slash the body image audit. Link will be in the show notes. Well, we are so excited to have you on, Brie. Well, thank you for having me. I'm yeah, excited we are to be pumped. here. And um, yeah, we can't wait to dive into this topic with you because we find it to be a pretty saucy topic and kind of fun. And before we started recording, you were talking about how you have to get to the root of it. So I'm so excited to dive into that with you. But before we get started, we would love to hear about how you became Body Image with Brie. Yes. Okay. So if you have never heard of me before, um, I always say that, you know, my Instagram sort of just happened on accident and I was learning all things about body image. Um, and I just needed an outlet to share all of this. I was like, I don't want all of my friends to unfollow me because I'm talking about body image and health at every size. And so for me, learning about health at every size, intuitive eating and body image was the key in healing my relationship with food in my body. So I, I identify as a fat Latina woman and I uh, say fat in a reclaimed way. I'm, I'm Latina and, and Italian, but I look Irish. That seems to be the predominant uh, uh, visible uh, marker or identifier, but I've always lived in a larger body and I always thought that making peace with my body was going to require me to be in a smaller body. And I never developed an eating disorder, but I definitely dabbled in disordered eating and um, severe restriction in the namesake of health. 
and was approved by doctors and nutritionists and other people unqualified to be making these, you know, assertions about my health. And it wasn't until I was an adult working in eating disorder recovery where I learned that I could be healthy in a fat body. And that, you know, just like dogs have different breeds, humans have different different sizes. And I just happened to be in a larger one. And so when I stopped trying to chase thinness, I started chasing peace. I wanted to think about my body less. I wanted my body to stop being the thing that kept me from showing up in life. And so, yeah, so Body Image of Brie was born just to talk about it. I never, never anticipated being where I am now. Never thought I'd have a business from it. It was a happy accident, as I like to say. Love that. So you mentioned you were working in eating disorder recovery. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and like what you were doing before and how you got led into that, even though that wasn't your personal experience? Yeah. So uh, I, when I was in graduate school, I was pursuing a master's in mental health counseling. And I had always, I had always loved the idea of body image. Obviously it took up so much space in my brain. And um, I actually remember had, I had gone to weight loss camp when I was younger and them advertising that they had licensed professional counselors to help you work on body image. But I couldn't remember that. That wasn't a part that I remembered. And I remember thinking like, oh man, like I would love to work on body image. And so I, I happened to get a, um, an internship at an eating disorder center that turned into a job. And I ran a lot of the groups. <laughs> and so some of the groups would be like body image. And I would be like, I would Google body image and be like, how do you work on it? And, or I'd go on Pinterest and I would be like, all of this sucks. It's like, you know, like dress up and say five things you like about your body. I was like, I wouldn't even do this. And so it forced me to deep dive, to understand what even is body image and how do we continue to explore what, what body image means. And so what I found is that just on the surface, right, body image is what we think we look like, right? It's how we, we perceive ourselves. But it actually is so much more than that. It's how we believe that other people perceive us. It's the thoughts and beliefs that we hold around our body size. And it's the behaviors that are attached to our beliefs around our body size. And until we can address all four components of that and look at what we're doing in our life and what our decisions are being motivated by, the body image needle isn't going to move very far. Yes, it does. Sorry, I, I took me a second to to unmute myself for a minute. I love how you talked about how the how body image has these these different components that you have to you have to work on, and each each one along the way is a big piece in this larger body image puzzle. And a lot of the things that we go and I love how you 
how you um, shared how you just Googled what is body image or you went to Pinterest, you know, the place where diet culture loves to live <laughs> and, and you Google and you searched in their body image and saw these things that were so superficial, you know, not surprisingly, right? Um, I'd love for you to dive in a little bit more on some of those, those components, like maybe, maybe one that was really struggling for you or how your motivation plays into how you utilize all those different things, like how you perceive yourself, how others perceive you and how you're motivated within each of those. Totally. So, I mean, what is, what is motivation? Right. And, and how does that, and how does that even play a part in, in body image? And I, I knew for me that this perspective that the, the component rather that hurt me or was the largest hurdle, the component that was the largest hurdle was how will others perceive me? So I had done a lot of work and up until this point, I had done a lot of work on um, my own internalized fat phobia without even being aware that I was working on my own internalized fat phobia. And having less problems with other fat people, it was, I didn't also want to be a fat person. And in the time saying fat was not reclaimed. It was, if people see me in this large body, they're going to think that I am unintelligent. They're going to think that I have no self-control. They're going to think that I'm undisciplined and unwilled. And I did not want to be perceived as those stereotypes. And when you take away like, like, let's say, for example, let's say that they do think those things. I had to ask myself, why does that matter to me? What is it do I think that I'm losing because of these existent stereotypes? And there were two narratives that I, I truly fell into that I got really stuck in. The first was that I wasn't going to be taken seriously in my field. And the other was, I was never going to find a romantic partner. And because of my own, you know, work with, with a therapist, we really, really honed in on first um, of just feeling like a professional. And so, uh, you know, I did a lot of things to help elevate my confidence. I did a lot of training. I did a lot of research. I came up with, um, just sort of programs that I could run with, with the, with the girls or the women in the program so that I would know how to, how to, you know, maneuver through their body image objections. And then I became less, I became less scared by the body image objections because I knew, I knew how to address them. But that piece that was unwavering was this fear of, I will never be loved in this fat body. And as an intelligent master's level, you know, human being, I said, you know, that does not sound like an adult wound. That sounds like a very young wound that was never tended to. And that was true, is that it was a childhood wound. I, I remember the first time being told, you know, no one will ever love you because you're fat. And it's like I reverted back to that age. And I had to address that childhood wound as an adult. How do, I, how do I now maneuver through that? Well, what if no one loves me because I'm in a fat body? And, and, and here's the truth is um, society likes to paint 
that there's one ideal body size for everyone. And it's just not true. It's it's like it's like saying that you know there's there's one universal favorite favorite flavor of ice cream. Like, you know, pe- people will you know stick to their guns on like no, this is the best. And so there are different flavors for everyone. And so the idea that being loved was not a possibility for me because I was in a larger body grieved me. And when I realized, wait a second, I could be loved and desired in this larger body, it came down to, I don't feel loved or lovable or desirable in this larger body. And that's where I needed to start doing the work. That's some, um, one, so vulnerable of you to share such a deep part of your journey and those childhood wounds. And I think a lot of people can relate to those conversations. And if we think back, there are probably times that we were told something as a child, as even as well-intentioned as it is, like, you know, um, sometimes it's like, oh, we're looking out for you or whatever, or I'm saying something. And um, we don't realize at the time how damaging and how much that that little thing sticks with us and then informs how we move through the world, right? And all the things that you've done to unravel that one, I just want to acknowledge, thank you for being so vulnerable and sharing your, your reality in that. And two, I think it's a good segue into you spend a lot of time on social media talking about grief and discomfort a lot. And, and you use it specifically as a way to describe your feelings about residing in a larger body. Um, I would love for you to dive into what you meant there and why that grief and discomfort isn't such a bad thing, but it can be really helpful for your growth and processing through your body image. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, so I'm never going to, I'm never going to sugarcoat like, yeah, grief is great. (laughs) It sucks. Like it, it sucks. There's no, there's no way around that. Um, but here's the difference, right? So many times. So when I came into this health at every size space, I kept seeing people talk about body acceptance. And when you think about acceptance through the stages of grief, that's not the first stage. Like you don't go from hatred to acceptance. If you look at the stages of grief, there is anger, denial, there is depression, there's bargaining, there's all these different stages that you have to maneuver through. And so what I find with my clients specifically, with people who work with me, is they are stuck in this, they are in the depression stage of their their body grief. They're not yet ready to accept it. And yet they also know there's no going back. There's no more bargaining. There's no more like, maybe I can fix this. Maybe this isn't my life. Maybe, maybe I'm not meant to exist. Like they are just, yep, this is where I'm at and it sucks. And here's what I don't do. I don't say, okay, now we just have to say some affirmations and accept it. It's let's sit in the suck. <laughs> let's like, what's the worst part about this for you? What's the story that's playing on loop in your brain? And what do you need right now? How can we meet your current needs. And I had a, had a client say recently to me, and it, it was profound. It, it was body acceptance stopped being about me liking how my body looks 
and became about me taking care of this current body. And that, that is the pinnacle of my work is acceptance is a byproduct of self-love, self-care and radical acceptance, not this societal acceptance of I'm going to like how I look in every picture and I'm going to like all the different parts of my body and I I look photoshopped in real life. That's not that's artificial. And and for those who accomplish that, how long do they accomplish that for? For a very short period of time. The work that we do together is long lasting regardless of whatever your body looks like. I love that. And thank you for sharing that. I think it's so important for, you know, for anybody who has experience in learning about the stages of grief or going through them themselves at, you know, whatever the area is, um, it's so important to think about it in that way. Because we talk about all the time how like body acceptance, body positivity can seem like a roadblock for people because with where they feel currently you're like, I'm never going to be able to get there. What are you talking about? And so then it feels like they're kind of being gaslit by people in the body image or the body positivity community because it's like, how dare you who, especially when we look at like hashtag body positivity now as it exists, right? All these thin white women, quite frankly, who like probably look like me or even smaller are like, just accept your body for what it is. It's going to be fine. And anybody who's in a larger body is like, well, it's fine for you to say that because you're in a straight-sized body or you're in a body that conforms to the current aesthetic standard that's being set by celebrities and social media and everything. But I think speaking of grief and all these different body objections that you were talking about and kind of like societal expectations and what you were afraid of, one of the things that you have been posting about recently, which we loved, that which we wanted to go into today, um, is discussing body image and sexiness because we can go into this, but one of one of the things that really holds people back from body acceptance is they don't view their current body or a fat body or someone in a larger body or a disabled body or you know whatever not straight sized able body as capable, sexy, all of the things, and so then there's this other roadblock of how how can we even start to approach sexiness and body image and healing those together yeah i i love this question and it it the idea of sexiness came up in in one of the groups the, the body grievers groups that i was running of being a hurdle of i can't accept my body because i don't feel sexy and we explored this topic of sexiness of what does sexiness mean to you? And I think that there's oftentimes this misconception that sexiness equals confidence and that, you know, sexiness means I'm going to be able to show up naked on my Instagram page, which I'm very confident and I don't do that. That's not how I exude my confidence. And again, different strokes, different folks, like, some people that is how they they show their confidence and um actually victoria wellsby she, she talks about the sexy parts of of body image and that being the part that everyone wants to work on they want to get the bikini and they want to do the photo shoot but there's so much groundwork to do beforehand 
that maybe not so sexy. <laughs> and when you peel back those layers and you you look under the carpet, if you will, it once you know, you can't you can't unknow. And so for me, on my own journey, this hurdle of sexiness was a barrier for me. And once I figured out, oh, this is this is a lie that I've believed that other people might believe also. Those are not my people. That's not the person I want to be with anyway. And so I remember talking about uh, in my own therapy, this fear of not being sexy and really needing to explore what even is sexiness? Who is a person in my mind that exudes sexiness? What, what does not feeling sexy mean that I will lose out on? What is it the fear that I'm going to lose out on? And I'll tell you, similarly to that grief and loss and the perception of others is it always comes back to love and belonging. Is there is a fear that if I am not thin, if I'm not desirable, if I'm not sexy, if I am in a large body, then what's going to happen is I'm going to miss out. And there's a very real conversation on fat phobia that we can discuss. And this is why I also work with providers because we need to be able to assess out what is reality and what is fat phobia and also what's a wound. And so, yeah, there are things that I miss out on because I exist in a larger body. I do not have the privilege of going into any store and making sure I can fit in my size. I do not have the luxury of knowing I will fit in every booth or in, in seats. I don't know if I will need an extra seat on the airline because they're not made for me. There's a very real conversation on fat phobia that can be had. The difference for me now is those things no longer also narrate how I feel about myself. So when I used to not be able to find clothes that would fit in my body, or I couldn't fit into clothes in the store, when I couldn't fit in the airplane seat, there was an overwhelming sense of shame that I did something bad or that I was bad. And so when you suss out all of the different parts of the narrative that are playing out, when you can separate them into the right organizational buckets of, okay, that's diet culture. Okay, that's fat phobia. Okay, that's an internal wound. It helps you to identify how you can organize your thoughts and feelings going forward. Oh, I like how you're talking about the peeling back the carpet and going like under this, going deeper into each of the various layers because we think about it a lot around, and you mentioned it earlier, around our beliefs you know, and our beliefs about our body image and our beliefs around sexiness and how that carries into how we show up in the world and how we show up for ourselves, right? Like we build in this internal narrative of saying, okay, uh, I have this belief about how this is supposed to look and how this is supposed to play out. And that, if I don't fit that, then everything outside of there, how I'm going to show up and how I'm going to approach myself, my body, my sexiness, my worthiness, my lovability, all like name, all of the things, it informs how we move through that and how we move through our lives. And in a lot of ways, 
those beliefs, and Dana and I refer to them a lot as limiting beliefs, right? Is these limiting beliefs um, are limiting, right? <laughs> like they're they're keeping us back from being able to to move forward and to feeling connected to our body and instead of feeling like our body is something that we need to detach from ourselves in a lot of ways. So I'd love for you to talk a bit about um, some of the journeys that uh, either your clients or you have gone through around how negative impact, negative body image impacted your their overall like sexual desire. How does it impact it in such a big way? Because we know that it does, right? We know that it has to, especially when we carry the belief that sexiness is confidence. And if we don't feel confident, how can we feel sexy? So I would love for you to dive into that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I like the idea of limiting beliefs and, and, and I'll, I'll also call them um, like gremlin thoughts. Um, after Brene Brown, she, she talks a lot about um, how these, these thoughts take resonance in our brain and they're a lot like gremlins. So if you remember the movie where there's like rules to keep them alive, that you have to, you know, feed them at a certain time. Then one of them is that when you bring them into the light, they can't survive. And so when you take out your gremlin or your limiting belief and you look at it, you can understand it more. But a lot of times in this idea of grief, it can feel so heavy and so hard to explore that. And so, uh, you know, for myself and for my clients, one of the, the limiting beliefs, right, was that I can't be loved, right, or I will miss out or will lose out on love if I'm not desirable by society standards. And the more that I was able to explore that, that gremlin, it was like, well, I don't necessarily know if that's true because I experience a lot of love in my life. Well, okay, but not, not the romantic love. And so, so for my own trajectory, kind of talking about the little, you know, containers, I also had this really confusing container of, um, a very conservative upbringing around the idea of sex and around sexiness. And so you put that all together <laughs> and it just made a mod podge that I was like, I don't even know how to explore. And so what I realized kind of looking back is I had this idea of love that would be like, I'm going to put these walls up and someone is going to see that and say, there's a challenge and I'm going to climb those walls and I'm going to get, I'm going to get to the top of the tower. And my, I, my, my therapist at the time said, she was like, it almost feels like that you, you have like that these walls are like a, a tower. Like, how would you describe them? And I, I even described um, the, from Tangled, you know, in Rapunzel and that she has this long tower. And I was like, someone will climb up there. Some, some brave gentleman will, he'll, he'll do that. And she hadn't seen the movie. And she said, but even in that example, Rapunzel has to do something. She has to put her hair down. And I, that shook me. I was like, oh no, I, I don't even know what that would look like. Right. And so and like, I would get so mad when people are like, are you putting yourself out there? And I'm like, what does that even mean? I don't even know what putting myself out there. Means. 
And what I realized was that I was actually terrified of being loved as I am in my mind, in its broken state, that the only person who would have been able to reach that was someone willing to climb the tower without any help. (laughs) And so it was a lot of going backwards and being like, okay, we're not even going to, we're not even going to attempt to be a a sexual being right now. We're just going to attempt to be human and be like, how do you talk to men? How do you talk to potential like suitors? Like how, how does that even work? And realizing that like I was doing the things in my twenties, what most kids do in their teens of like, okay, you're going to go up to a boy and you're going to talk to him and you're not going to die. <laughs> not believing that either being like, oh my God, it's going to be so embarrassing. And so um, and, and it's, it's funny because I'll, I'll hear clients, we'll, we'll have this, this conversation about dating. There is a reality that dating in a larger body is harder. I'm not going to minimize that. For me though, now, what I think is that while maybe the initial is harder, I don't think the end is hard, like the end result. If you are dating, for a long-term relationship, I don't think that that means less large-bodied people get married or have relationships. Because that's another thing. When you're sussing out these um, these wounds and these core beliefs, I was like, I know a lot of people in large bodies that are married. So how does how does this make sense? If this is my belief system, but there's no evidence or there's little evidence to support that, where do these beliefs keep coming from? There's another perspective on just online dating. It's pretty superficial. And even people whom I know in real life who I would probably date, I would not date them if I saw their online profile because they would, I would just be like, nope, like I, I, yeah, no hard pass. But in real life, it it might be different. So (laughs) dating in the digital age is harder. And so, yes, I know we're talking about sexiness and we keep going back to dating, but one of the things I had to explore was how do I feel sexy as just a human being? Like, how do I feel sexy? And so I started with buying lingerie just for me, not for anybody else. And it was uncomfortable. <laughs> like I felt like I was doing something bad, something wrong. And I really had to suss out is this the conservative upbringing coming out in me? Is this the fat phobic, um, uh, you know, thought process coming out? What's what's coming to the surface? And even to the point of being able to wear a two piece, I, I can remember specifically um, showing off my stomach, and not not me, but that triggering a memory from when I was younger. I couldn't have been more than twelve or thirteen when a, a family member had said, like was commenting on someone else's body on the beach. And it was like, you know, you're like, I, cause I was so insecure. And she, she said something to the point of like, you're fine. Like you're like, you're covered. You look, you like, it looks tasteful. It's these other girls who are in bikinis who are wearing things that they shouldn't be wearing. Like, why did nobody tell them that they, they don't look good? And that being implanted in my mind of their their mostly naked body doesn't look good. So covered up, I'm okay. But 
at you take away the layers, that's not okay. And so that 12, 13 year old wound growing with me into adulthood. And so I think I had shared um, one of the first times I wore crop top in my adult life. And we, I call it a body image exposure, right? Of knowing there's dissonance around, okay, my heart is not caught up yet to my head. So we're going to try it. We're going to see what happens. And I also felt this innate responsibility being body image with branding, like, oh my goodness, like, how can I say that I'm body positive if I can't even get myself to wear this crop top? And, and thank God for, for my, my best friend who was there and she was like, Bree, you still have to go out tonight. So do you want to go out being uncomfortable or do you want to make everybody on Instagram quote unquote happy? And I was like, damn it, like, you're right. So I didn't end up sharing the photos. I ended up changing. And then later, as I became more comfortable looking at the photos, I was like, you know what? I hate them less. I don't, I'm not as accosted as I was the first time I saw them. And what I've realized now is that's part of my own journey of I needed to become comfortable with my own body and seeing all of the parts of my body in order to even begin having this conversation on sexiness, that my relationship with being sexy has nothing to do with a partner. And it starts with me. Like that's where it starts. So one thing you mentioned in there that I would love for you to go into a little bit in case people haven't, (laughs) haven't caught up to that concept yet is when you said my heart hadn't caught up to my head yet. And so before we started recording, you had also mentioned like head and heart knowledge. Can you go into that a little bit more? Totally. So uh, I'll use this this example of head to heart knowledge. And that's when you know something cognitively, but it doesn't impact how you feel emotionally. And so I'll joke that we, you know, specifically I work, I work with a lot of women and I'll, I'll say to my body grievers, I'll say, you are strong, intelligent, intellectual, accomplished women. And yet it's almost like we revert back to like a fifth grade wound. And I feel like I'm talking to middle schoolers about like, but what if they don't like me? And that to me is such information of when my head knowledge, my experience, my accomplishments, my self-assuredness, right? I like to use that word instead of confidence, my self-assuredness, because it means without doubt. So when my self-assuredness does not match up with my beliefs, like when, like I know that I'm a good therapist, but then I would go into a room in the eating disorder center and that wound of, oh my God, what if I get called out right now? There was a disconnect. And so I thought the solution was I need to get more training. So I would go in and get more training and I'd be like, oh my God, yes, I'm so good. I know this, I know this, I know this. And then I get in the room and I would feel insecure. And what I realized was it wasn't every time, right? There were certain times. So when were those times that it started to come out? For me, mostly when I was dealing with parents who were in smaller bodies, that my fear was they were going to look at me and that my body was going to give them all the information that they needed. 
they were not going to trust me because they didn't want their child to look like me. Now, for me, that wound was so new that I couldn't hold that pain with them. I could not be like, yeah, this is more about them than it is about me. It still felt, it still felt very real to me. And so what I'd advise any provider who's experiencing that now of, okay, well, if that is, if that is you, that's okay. And how do we then tend to that wound? How do we heal that wound first before trying to assess our confidence or our self-assuredness in the room. There's no training. There's no book. There's no manual. There's nothing out there that is going to address the wound quite like exploring the wound yourself. And that's why affirmations don't work. <laughs> like, and let me, let me rephrase. Cause I feel like people might come to me for that. Like I love affirmations. When you, when you would look at like body image work, on Pinterest, it would be like, say five nice things about yourself. And I was like, this is this, I don't know if I can curse. This is BS. Like this is total garbage. I wouldn't even do this. Um, or like opposite action. And what I realize now is that if there's not a firm foundation of those two recommended um, solutions, quote unquote, then it's going to crumble. It's going to give it like the walls are going to give in. Those are just random, you know, we're just doing random spot work and we're like, oh, why isn't the structure standing? Because there's no firm structure to be based on. So if we can pull it down, we can start fresh of how do I believe people exist in the world? Do Does this matter for other people? Do I have this belief for other people? And if the answer is no, it's not aligned with my values. So I knew that when I was around other professionals, I didn't care what size body they were in. I cared about what they were saying. And so if there was something that made me think less of them as a professional, like, I don't know if they, like, I think at the time I was still very disordered. And so um, I judged all of them. I was like, they're all eating all these, you know, I forgot what I called them, but unhealthy foods. I don't know how I ever got a job in an eating disorder center. It's a a mystery to me, but I thank God because it would not be here without it today. (laughs) And so now I can look back and be like, ooh, that was my own stuff. That was my own stuff getting in the way. And this is where my cognitive dissonance really came out was how come smaller body providers could sit there and talk about eating mac and cheese and donuts and it'd be okay. But in my body, I'm considered glorifying obesity because I'm eating mac and cheese or donuts. And so it was a deep struggle for me to work through. And once I realized, oh, there is no difference. And that somebody who feels or sees that difference, that's about them and the stuff they need to work through. Um, it was it was enlightening. And so so circling back to the head and the heart knowledge, if, if somebody is listening to this and they're like, yep, that's me. The first thing I would recommend doing is writing out your values. Like look up any values list and figure out what's important to you. What ties you to this world? Is aesthetic beauty a top value for you? What I realized is, it's not for me. 
Like there are so many other things that are important to me that make me up that have nothing to do with how I look. And so then we can do is we can say, all right, well, on the surface, you're saying you care about what you look like, but deep down, that's not even a value you hold. So whose value is that? It's not yours. Is it diet culture's? Is it a childhood wound? Is, was it somebody else's that they gave to you? And that's how you can start to suss out of, oh, this is my head knowledge and here's how I make it hard knowledge. I'd love how you shared the, the story around as a practitioner and the the beliefs that you were carrying about yourself and how you felt like you projected those on other people. They may have been thinking about it. They may have not been thinking about it. We'll never know. But the truth is, is that you were internalizing it in that way. And I think of it as a really great example is how we seek out external validation or external trainings or diets or whatever to seek out ways to make us feel like we belong, you know, and that we belong at that table and we belong to be having a seat at that table and a part of that conversation and how the reality is we've been, we've been allowed and welcomed at that table this whole time where we should be, right? Or we believe it in our heart of hearts, right? That we belong there or maybe in our head first <laughs> and then our heart comes later like you were talking about. But I think, um, I just really loved, I just really loved that because I think if we put the connection together between the two things, I think people will start to see, oh, wow, you know what? I don't really think that about other people. I don't think that someone else is considered to be unsexy because of something else. Like, do I think of people in a larger body as unsexy? Not necessarily, right? Like I see people I'm like, oh, they exude something, you know, like what is it that they're exuding? What is it that they're bringing? What is it that, um... And why don't I feel like I'm worthy or able to exude that too? And what beliefs are holding me back from that? And I think um, that story of of talking to some of your clients' parents, we've all been there <laughs> kind of feeling of well, no matter what it is of not feeling like And guess like what? When it's not had, about your body, we it's going to be enough. about something else. Uh, and and that's that's the issue with these gremlins is they just find a new way to nest. When I stopped caring what people thought about my body, it just became something else of, okay, but if do, will they like me? And, and I say this quote a lot and it was what part of my, I call it an impactful reframe. So after I find the core belief of, people not liking me means that I will be loved less, right? I, I can't remember if that was the, the deep-rooted core, but I, I have on a post-it note here that you are not for everyone and you are loved. And sometimes I just have to remind myself that, yeah, you know what? It's You're not going to be liked by everyone. And the people who love you are going to still love you wholeheartedly. It doesn't mean that you miss out on love and belonging. It just means they get to miss out on being loved by you and loving you. And that can be hard. That can be a really hard um, place to, to move from, but that's where the impactful reframe actually is important. Not just, I'm gonna say a positive affirmation to get rid of the discomfort that I'm feeling as you share this really uncomfortable thing right now of like, okay, but 
people love you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that's, that's a, your brain knows that, but your heart doesn't get that. And I also just wanted to comment quickly of if somebody's listening to this and they are thinking, okay, but I do think that larger body people are not sexy. That's information. I would take that. I would say, I wonder where this messaging is coming from because I think people will, people will, will say, yeah, but like, isn't it okay to just have like a type? Like I know what I'm attracted to and I'm not. And sure. And I, and I say this with all love and, and respect, but it's actually a pretty shallow way to look at, at someone because looks fade. So if you love someone and God forbid something happens and their exterior changes, does your love actually change? And what I'll find is another hurdle that people get stuck is, of course not, but when it comes to weight, you, you should be able to control this. This is a hurdle you should be able to control. And, and that it's, again, it's information. It's cool. Thanks for that. Like, I appreciate that information. Is that true? Do I really believe that? And uh, I'll, I'll give another example. So as we were talking about this, this conversation on sexiness in, in one of my groups, we talked about, I said, you know, I don't, there's no stigma for me that I'm short. Like I just is right. That is neutral. That is neutrality of, I don't feel like a good or a bad person or a moral or immoral person because of my height. There are people who do. There are people who are fearful that because they're short, people will presume that they're not capable or that they're, you know, that they're not tough or wh whatever the case may be. That's information. It's not true. It's not based in reality. It's not based in anything other than the fear of how people perceive you. And that's the bigger issue. If we can get down to the perception and why that bothers us, rather than the surface of, I'm afraid people in, in, are not gonna like my body, whether it's because I'm too short or I'm too tall, or I'm, uh, you know, quote unquote, you know, you know, too fat or quote unquote, too skinny, whatever the case may be, of being able to decipher, oh, that's someone else's stuff and not my stuff. And what is my stuff? And have I even explored what that looks like? Another layer that Dana and I were thinking about around sexiness, going back to that too. And one of the things and using Dana's reference earlier to those navigation roadblocks, like these roadblocks when you're going through all this, is um, the concept of the beliefs around health play a role in this too. And I, <laughs> for people who can't see us, Brie had the most beautiful eye roll in that, <laughs> in that moment. And so I want you to share with us that like, that instinct that you had in that moment. How, how sexiness ever got tied up with health is just beyond Blame me. the paleo community. I, I <laughs> Honestly, I'm pretty sure that's where it's, where it came from. And like the whole like, look good naked, you got to eat like your ancestors type thing. Look how fit they were. Yeah, they also died at 20. So right. like <laughs> well, and like, to me, it's like, well, let's talk about health, right? What does health? mean to you. If health means skinniness, then you're right. I'm not healthy, but that's no longer how I define health. If health means looking good skinny, then you're right. I'm not healthy from your perspective. And, and, and this is a question I would pose to people of 
which to you in your mind is worse, being fat or having an eating disorder? And I would think most people think being fat is worse when the research actually shows having an eating disorder, disordered eating, body dysmorphia is far more impactful on one's health than being in a larger body. Because if you look at, if you look at Lindo, Lindo Bacon's work, body respect, what we eat and how much we move makes up 30% of our health. That's it. And we are fatter than ever and living longer than ever. And so we have learned to adapt. We are, we are an adaptable species that, you know, new illnesses and sicknesses keep coming up and we still find ways to adapt. And it just, it boggles my mind how diet culture has been able to co-opt health. It just, it, it, it boggles my mind. And so, yeah, I do think the, the biggest objections I get around body image is what about my health? What if I'm, you know, like, what if I'm not sexy? What if I'm not lovable? And, and they stem from the same place. They stem from wanting to be loved, accepted and, and desired. And so I know for me, one of the biggest griefs that I had when I gave up dieting was people complimenting my body. And I missed it so much. I missed the affirmations and the adoration and the praise that I got. The, it was everything I ever wanted in feeling like, see, pat myself on the shoulder. Good job, Ray. And when I, like people will compliment me now on different things. And I, it doesn't feel as good. I'll tell you, it doesn't feel as rewarding um, as somebody com commenting on, on how successful you are, or how proud they are of your self-discipline. And now it just, it feels sad. It feels sad that that's what I, like, I lived for the applause. I lived for that, that moment of satisfaction. I never once was actually doing it for health, yet I had gaslit myself in believing this is for health. And so I'm in the largest body that I've ever existed in. And I'm technically considered the healthiest that I've ever been. My blood work comes back and it's normal. And, and there are still things of this idea of perfect health. For me, there are still aspects of health that I want to work on. I am working on regulating my sleep, managing my stress, there's no, there's no arrival point. And it's the same thing I say with body image is rather than looking at body image as a destination, I look at it like an archeological dig. There's always more to explore. There's always information. And it says nothing about me as a person, whatever thoughts or beliefs come up, even if they're not thoughts or beliefs that align with my values that I can say, Ooh, that's interesting. Where did that come from? And where do I go from here? Well, a really interesting thing I was thinking about too is immediately when you said, you know, which one would you rather have an eating disorder or be in a fat body? It's so interesting to construe that question from a couple of different lenses, right? Like from the health lens. And then if you look at the research, it's actually more beneficial 
for health outcomes to be in a larger body. If you look at it from the diet culture and conditioning and institutionalized fat phobia from the like love and belonging lens, most people would actually probably choose to be in an eating disorder body if they have never been in that situation before. And some people who have been in that situation might actually choose that again, because when we think about a lot of the thoughts and beliefs that continue to fuel eating disorders once you're in it are obviously based off of, you know, all of these just like uh, institutionalized fat phobia and these beliefs about health and valuing health that are so intertwined with love and belonging. But now there's so many steps in between them that people kind of get lost along the way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's done purposefully. I think that that, that construct has, has, has been co-opted intentionally because if we can get people talking about diabetes and, and mobility and all of these things, it's like, well, then they, they lose out on all of their money. <laughs> and, and here's the thing is like, I feel like diabetes is one of those things in a lot of clients' minds that like, this, the worst thing that could happen. Like if I get a, if I get a diagnosis of diabetes, it is the ultimate failure. And I actually had a friend of mine say to me, like, diabetes is manageable. Like for the most part, it's manageable. Like it's, literally not the worst thing that you could, there are far more things that are unmanageable that we can't control. Diabetes is not the one I would be worried about. And yet it is the one that we are made to feel the most shame for because we quote unquote can control it or should be able to. Yeah. I've had that conversation with clients of mine too, around diabetes and also, excuse me, other health concerns are like a big deal, especially ones that they, they perceive to be really preventable. And a lot of times the the message and Dan and I are come from the integrative functional world. Like that's our, that's our background. So we know we've heard it like a thousand times <laughs> our entire education about do all these things and you can manage and prevent all these diseases. And it's like, so um, like, if you just do everything right, here's your holy grail. And so that message has really been um, deeply ingrained in a lot of people. And I think as practitioners, we've seen that's not the case. You know, that's not the case. That's not how it goes. And I think one of the things I was talking to one of my clients about is, okay, let's say you give up all of these things in your life and you do all of this stuff and you follow all of these things to the T what are you going to do if you still get diabetes? Sometimes we're just genetically predisposed to getting certain illnesses and that's it. And sometimes we can do everything perfectly, but yet we can still end up with diabetes or we can still end up with cancer. And it's not a reflection on our failures. It's a reflection on the fact that this is just the body that I was given and these are my genetics. And sometimes this happens, you know? And I think again, diabetes is manageable. Right. I mean, no one wants to get I'm not encouraging people to like celebrate getting a cancer diagnosis or even any kind of diagnosis because it's still difficult and you can grieve that. Right. Like going back to you, you can grieve that. But I think that's such an important distinction of letting people know what are we willing to give up in order to have the perception that we're controlling these outcomes because that's really all it is. It's the perception that we're controlling it, not that we're actually controlling the outcomes. And I think that that can be 
applied to any number one of the beliefs and the limiting beliefs and the gremlin conversations that we've talked about throughout this entire thing. You know, when it comes back to sexiness too, I think about that too. What am I willing to do and give up in order to have this perception of sexy? And again, it's the perception of sexy. Exactly. Because I can, I can attest to having been in my smallest body, I never felt sexy. I never felt secure. And it can never follow through on the promise that it gives you. So the promise of being in a smaller body, helping you feel sexy, maybe there are times, but it's not long lasting. But that's the same thing with, with body grief is many of us are so scared to explore the depths of what that body grief means because the, it just feels like we're going to fall off a cliff. But what I have found is that when you explore that body grief, it sucks, but you come back and you'll find that homeostasis. And the next time you'll be able to go out further and you'll come back. And we're never meant to set up camp in the grief. It's just part of the journey. That was beautiful. Well, Bree, thank you so, so much for coming on today. We're going a little bit over our time and we want to be respectful, respectful of yours. So if you could just, for everybody who obviously is going to want to find all of your things after this episode, if you could tell them where to find you, that would be amazing. Absolutely. Well, I would say the most fun place to find me would be on Instagram, Body Image with Bree. And I also have a podcast, um, body image with Brie. It is struggling though. So um, I don't, <laughs> I don't put out episodes just because it's a lot of work. So major props to both of you for, for getting these episodes out. Um, I have two audiences that I serve. I serve um, a, just the general pop with, you know, doing body grief work, but I also work with professionals because I want to be able to share my knowledge with professionals so that they can help their clients um, heal. And so you can find all of that information on my website, bodyimagewithbree.com. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you so much. Thank you so you much for having conversation. me. So many wonderful nuggets. Thank you. Hey friend, hope you loved today's episode. Just as a reminder, if you're interested in diving deeper into these topics and working on your own body image, check out the body image audit at bit.ly forward slash the body image audit. Hey friends, it's Christina. Thanks for listening to the Whole Party Eating Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your family and friends. Subscribe so you don't miss an episode. And if you can, leave a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. This really helps spread the word so more people can find the show and learn how to break out of diet culture, the body image spiral, and find a more peaceful relationship with food in their bodies using wholehearted eating. If you're interested in learning how we can work with me or Dana for one-on-one nutrition counseling, or you want to check out one of our self-paced courses, head over to wholeheartedeating.com. See you next week.